Welcome to The Maker and The Merchant with Fergus Elias and The Isaacs. This week on The Maker and The Merchant, Lee will be teaching me how to taste wine blind. I'll be talking about the new Balfour Archive Collection 2008. I'd like it noted that I've got the correct name marketing team. We will then actually put our skills to the test in a blind off where Lee and I taste two wines totally blind and Lee demonstrates quite how stupid I am. Looking forward to it. How are you, mate? I'm very well, thank you. I uh, th- Today, as we record this, I've just driven back from Liverpool with my vehicle intact, uh, including the stereo. So that's that's a thrill. But I, that aside... converters in place? Oh, I did have several warning lights on the dash. It could be... Yeah. But I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a cat, so um, <laughs> I, I guess that's fine. I'd love to have it. I would like to have a cat simply so I could call it Schrodinger. Mm-hmm. Um, although La Patrona has insisted she couldn't possibly pronounce that. So my, my other option were we to have a cat, I think I would like to call it Yusuf, which is slightly more tenuous because it, the cat would be named after Yusuf Islam, who in the 1970s was known as Cat Stevens. Yeah. So that would be hilarious, wouldn't it, at the vets? I mean, yes. Sorry. Wait, how? <laughs> cool. Um, uh, anyway, uh, anyway, it's uh, as we record this, yesterday... It was your birthday. Feliz cumpleaños, amigo. How was the birthday? Oh, thank you very much. Feliz Navidad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was cool. Um, we're up in the Lake District, uh, hence the dodgy sound quality. I mean, to be honest, I don't need to apologise for dodgy sound quality because every single time we record an episode of The Maker and the Merchant, my sound quality is dodgy, barring episode two. I think that was quite good. Um, toasty. That was, that's, that's still one of our strongest... But we, our episodes, I think, have, have got stronger. I don't know if our listener would agree, but I think our episodes have got stronger. I'm certainly enjoying them more and more as, as they go on. And oh, absolutely. Although mum hasn't spoken to me, well, since we started, actually. So I, I don't know. Um, but I'm sure I'm sure she's enjoying them. Well, she, she did send me a message and asked if I could come round for tea. Um, so um, I, I must reply because I, I'd love to. I just um, I just said no melon. Uh, any, anything else is pretty much fine, but no, no melon. No, um, it doesn't mean melon with a little bit of um, prosciutto on top of melon. Uh, the the prosciutto is fine, but the melon uh, would be no, would no. be a no from me. I am. I don't mind sharing this with our one listener, <laughs> given it's our one listener who's invited me round to tea. Um, I'm allergic to melon oh, in really? all it, in all its forms. Wow! Cannot eat melon, and it it's not a low level allergy. It's a very severe almost instantaneous you know when you watch like doctor who when he when he uh when he like transmogrifies into a different doctor yeah and and when and it's quite and it's quite violent and there's like light everywhere and loud noises and the ground shaking and and it's it's armageddon um it's very much like that Uh, if i even hear the word melon that's what happens It's, it's it's frightening but yeah. um i mean i like the bit where you like all melons and the first my first instinct was because you said all melons start listing melons <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> it's, cantilever. I, I don't know why this is but it's like a pavlovian dog response <laughs> when i tell people this that is exactly what people do. guarantee all every melons. single time they go even even Galia, like yes, I can't eat. It's like that episode of Red Dwarf, 
Where's the crew? Everybody's dead, Dave. I've what, even... I said cantilever. Are you allergic <laughs> to those melons that look like bridges? A cantilever melon. What? Could you make a bridge from a melon? Who? Uh, a bridge for ants, maybe, which is what we in trades refer to as a callback because uh, Jessica mentioned ants in the last episode, which I, that was a great episode, episode six, uh, Suitcase Clowns. Yeah, um, but for anybody listening to this that hasn't listened to that episode, I'm sure that person doesn't exist. Go back, listen to episode six and go to www.mouseandgrape.com. Check out um, Jess's brilliant wine and cheese hampers and her corporate and um, public tasting events. Well worth a look. Brilliant. But oh, mate, m- uh, her check didn't clear. So we need to. Oh, didn't it? Grab, yeah, oh, right. Just. Just, um, just, just go to your nearest supermarket, pick up some cheddar, be, be fine. Um, no, we should. I, in in all seriousness, which we don't normally do, we should say, um, Fergus and I last episode uh, split a hamper, uh, or just split a hamper, sent us one hamper between us. Uh, that was bought and paid for from the TM and TM coffers, um, which are now in the the red. Um, very much so. Yeah, I, I hope you like the colour red, Ferg, because we're going to be seeing a lot of it. But yes, Fergus and, and, and I, we did pay for that hamper. Jess offered to send us something, but we wanted the full experience and, and it was agreed. So uh, it's not a paid promotion. Um, if it were a paid promotion, we'd make sure that you knew about it. And if anybody does want to do a paid promotion, I'm doing I'm, what I'm doing right now, because it's it's audio, I'm doing like the finger guns and the wink. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. No, it's, yeah. it looks great, mate. It looks really we're, good. Even with my I mean, woolly hat on, which nobody can actually see, but um, I mean that is a particularly <laughs> ugly woolly hat. Um, my, my aunt who knitted it for me, because as as being a near forty year old man, that's how cool I am. I wear knitted hats knitted by my auntie. Uh, she'll be she'll be thrilled at what you think about it. <laughs> so I'll get her to make you one. But... <laughs> Sorry, Moving on work. to episode seven. Mm. Um, the archive collection, a retrospective of Balfour Winery at the Hush Heath Estate, Rosé. Uh, I've today read John Mobbs at Great British Wine. Uh, again, anybody listening to this that isn't aware of John Mobbs, um, what are you doing? Great British Wine, in my opinion, is the greatest resource we have on English wine and information on producers and what's happening. GreatBritishWine.com, go and check it out. But Ferg, tell me about this event. Where was it? When was it? What went on? Wow. Well, it was actually, yeah, it was it was very, very exciting. John Mobbs, briefly, what a man. What a resource as well, that page is. Um, just echoing your thoughts there. But no, no, so Balfour, Balfour Winery, the winery itself is only 12 years old, but the first vineyards, the Hushita Estate, were planted in 2002. And so as a result, we are in our 20th year. And we thought we'd take the opportunity to make, make a fuss of ourselves, really. Uh, so we held a tasting. We uh, recently in- acquired um, Bow Wine Vault, Wine Vault, which is in sort of Square territory in Bow. So we decided we'd hold uh, a retrospective tasting. And so we went all the way back through the archives. So we tasted 2004 Balfour Brew Rose, so the first ever Balfour Brew Rose that we shelled. We also tasted some 2005, 2006. Phenomenal, really interesting sort of formative years of Balfour Rosé when the wine was being made at uh, Chapel Down. Uh, same winemaker, it's, it's a wine that's only ever had one winemaker because it was dad. It was actually fascinating. So we, we sort of broke it into three parts. So it was two things in one. So it was a retrospective. So we looked at, we looked at how Balfour Rosé, the wine, had changed 
and or not, as the case may be. But uh, we looked at how it has developed so over the course of the 20 years. We were also celebrating the launch of our latest wine. So this is wine number 32 in my catalogue of wines, what Fergus makes. Uh, so this is the archive collection 2008. So this is Balfour Brut Rosé 2008, but disgorged in August. So recent RD, old. Oh, yep. 14 years on the lease. 14 years to the lease. Oof. Yeah. It's cool, but it's fascinating. So we did that, and then and then we moved in. We also did 2010, 2014, 2018, which is quite nice. Because 2010, of course, is the year the winery was built. Uh, 2014 was the year we moved out of clear glass. So it took a bloody long time to get out of clear glass. Um, and 18 is both the latest release, but also the year we moved into canal. So it's sort of a brown, a brown glass. So mm -hmm. again, better UV protection. So. You've got these sort of three phases of Balfour in one tasting, which is really fascinating. Um, we had some amazing people come. Um, yeah, just it was it was awesome, dude. And what I loved was we tasted all these wines, and we'll you know I can I can we'll, we'll touch on some of them, but but you tried all these wines, and you know some of them had 15, 16, 17 years on cork, and they were still so fresh and clean and linear and it was really fascinating tasting and and quite interesting to see where people were plumping for, for their favorite as it were because it, it moved around but really fascinating and and it was lovely it was a real night a really a really lovely testament to the sort of non-malactic approach that mm. we take with with Balfour with vintage wines because they keep so well and it's something i've noticed with when i can buy when i compare our vintage wines with other producers vintage wines and in, i'm in no way saying that theirs are worse than mine or better than mine i'm just saying they taste different ours always tastes younger so like the my prime example the one i always come back to is um gusborne 2014 blanc de blanc one of the best blanc de blancs out of england no question of a doubt no shit i've got no qualms saying that Tasted that side by side with our 2014 Blanc de Blanc, also a very good wine, IWSC gold medal winner, you know, all that, all the all the bells and whistles. That was in sort of 1920. We tasted these two side by side. Ours tasted about two years younger. It was fascinating to see. And is, is that I'm guessing that's it because obviously acidity is antioxidant. So is is that the, the cumulative effect of you know, not having mallow, your, your, your malic acid is high, your acid is high. So that's just staving off oxygen and slowing the development of the wine. I'm, I, I'm oversimplifying that, but I'm I, guessing that's the, the crux I, of it. I'm guessing, I, I think that's what it is. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a whole pile of, pile of other bits and other caveats that you need to tack on to that. Mm -hmm. um, Have you always been non-mallow? Is that a, from, from inception, was that a, a stylistic choice? Yeah, so all vintage wines thus far to be released out of Balfour have been non-mallow. The non-vintage stuff, that, that does have mallow because the idea is those wines are going to be released after 12 months or so, certainly. So you, you want them to be available to you quicker. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not Dermot Sugru. We don't have 15 million years to wait before we release a wine. Um, well, he is very cynical, as you know, Ted. <laughs> 
So, you know, there's an element of that. Uh, but yeah, the vintage wines have always been non-mallow. Is, and it's it's part of our calling card now. It's part of the DNA of, of Balfour wines is they're always very pure. They're always quite linear and it's always quite acid driven. And I like that. I'm, I'm, I'm quite, quite comfortable working with that. <laughs> I think that's also, I think it's quite interesting because one of, one of the things we talk about with English wine generally is a very high acidity. And for a while, I think people saw it as a negative rather than embracing going no, this is a characteristic of of English wines are there, because I, I genuinely ask this is a genuine question I, I don't know are there many other producers in the UK that, that do carry out mallow or, or anywhere near you as regularly as you do or are you kind of one of the maybe one of the outliers in that respect or, um, or would you know I think we're probably one of the outliers in our in a non-mallow approach there aren't many I mean Whiston famously don't do a great deal of malolactic but for most people, Mallow appears to be part and parcel of just this mm-hmm. is just how you make wine. You, you, you ferment, you do your Mallow uh, sequentially or as a co-inoculant. And that's that's normal. And that's that's how you that's how you how it's done. Um, and that's that's yeah, that's that's fine. That way. You know, non non-mallow, it's got that freshness, but and something I find with your wines, it'd be easy to think, well, it's non-mallow, it's high acid, maybe it's a bit piercing. Um, it, it's not these and you know, all the wines of yours that I've experienced and and you know, still round, not that the acidity is high, but it, it, it's no. not sticking out, it's not jarring. So how do you well, how do you work to kind of offset? And this is speaking massive generalizations, so obviously it's great, but we're a bit more picky about picking. My acceptable chemical parameters picking are probably more stringent than others and mm-hmm. um, so i if if i've got acids north of 12 so grams 12 grams per liter expressed tartaric i'm not going to pick that i'm not interested it's too high for me to work with unless it tastes phenomenal i'm not going i'm not going to touch it you know, we look for our ideal numbers are acid somewhere around 10 and a half to 11 on 10 and a half. That feels a bit low. 11 on receivable. And during the winemaking process, you naturally lose around two grams through various bits. And that puts you in, a, in, in quite a nice spot. So you're around about between eight and nine grams of acid. And that's perfect for our sparkling wines. And there's probably... There's probably two or three grams of malic in there, maybe not as much as that, but maybe two grams of malic in that, making up that number. For us, that's perfect. But for other growers, mm-hmm. if the acid's at 13 or 14, they'll be more, more willing to pick because they know that they're then going to put the wine through malolactic. So they're mm-hmm. then going to have to not that down. Bring, their, bring their acids down to you know somewhere around nine mm-hmm. again but they're doing it in a different way. For us, pick riper and then you get, that's that's our our ethos is that we want riper fruit picked on time. So it's effectively, and you've said before, you know, winemaking is just making a series of decisions. And this, this decision tree here on controlling acidity is mm. pick it higher and then mallow it out or just pick it a bit later. So it's lower. In, in terms of, you know, you, I think you have a fix or eight or nine grams uh, per litre across the wines that you were tasting and i think you, you said you went back to, to 004 yeah were the was the were the dosage levels sort of similar across those wines yeah, or, or did you see variation there there was variation and the acids varied by about a gram either way so i think the highest we had was about 9.5 and the lowest was about 8.1 but 
but the golden number with alpha rose it's not actually that surprising is eight grams per liter of dosage and it's a bit of a truism in 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 wine that if you're looking for a wine sweet spot start with matching the grams per liter of acid against mm -hmm. the sugar so if it's it's got nine grams per liter of acid try it at nine grams <laughs> um, it's usually a good place to start um, because you get that's just that's just the way it is it's, it's just one of those weird things that you know it's balanced something which yeah is really important and so yeah i think the dosage range wasn't huge you know you had tasted eight different iterations from seven different vintages and i think the highest dosage we saw was 10 grams and the lowest ground was six so in 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 eight eight, eight versions we've we've moved it four grams <laughs> either way but again, that's, that's where it works that's that's good winemaking isn't it is you're taking what nature's given you and you can't just craft the same thing year in year out so, so the other question about all these vintages you've tasted how did the the blend of varieties used did that change dramatically or was it broadly sort of similar with each vintage that you tasted did it change dramatically yes and no i mean the most dramatic changes probably took place in between 04 and 06 so in 04 we didn't have any pinot monier producing so the blend was exactly 50 50 chardonnay pinot noir 05 you started to get monier so i think it was about four and a half percent monier by 06 it was about where it is now which is somewhere around the 15 percent mark which is about right i think what's quite interesting is the blend hasn't fluctuated massively Although this year, so the 2018, was the only iteration that was Pinot dominant. Usually, Chardonnay was the dominant variety, and then Pinot Noir, and then the 2018, I think, was 47% Pinot Noir. So it's the first time it's been there's been a flip. So more Pinot Noir than Chardonnay, is still about 15%, which is quite interesting. Quite, um, yeah. I mean, there's an element of we're limited by the vineyard because it's. A single vineyard wine to an extent i mean it is it is a single vineyard okay. wine um occasionally we'll use a bit of pinot noir from another vineyard for assemblage for color and if there's a really interesting parcel we might incorporate that in but you're still you're talking a few hundred liters in several thousand so it's you know you're below 10 percent. so you know your varietals are never going to change that much because it's the vineyard is the vineyard is the vineyard it's okay. it's 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 I've only got X number of thousand Chardonnay vines. So. Really interesting about this and, and um, you know, having read John's uh, wonderful notes that he's made over it, um, as I said to, uh, you know, our listener, greatbritishwine.com. You know, we, we don't really get to taste old English wines because the industry from a, from a serious commercial perspective is still quite new. Old English sparkling rosé. Sound that, that alone, and I think John said at the end of his report you know um he's written a lot and, and collected a lot particularly sort of blanc de blanc sparkling wines john has a staggering collection but he said you know has he missed a trick by not buying up you know sparkling rosés when it released and, and from the sounds of it in his descriptions uh it sounds like he hasn't it, from what he's written it sounds like all of these wines were absolutely singing what what what, what were the stand there obviously the archive collection the, the rd 2008 was it was pretty special man it is really quite special um very reasonably priced 120 pounds. is that and, and there's 120 bottles in total is that right yeah I and mean, that is 14 years on the lease come on that's a bit that's a lot of money on a bottle of wine i wouldn't dispute that. A lot, but, but I mean, for, for what it is that's a that's a steal 
it, it really is. And I mean, yeah, that showed well. The 2010 showed really well, um, which was quite sad because that was literally my last bottle of 2010 disgorge. I've got some to leave. So the archive mm -hmm. collection, one thing about the archive collection is, as you were saying, no one in England has a huge heritage of making of making wine. You know, let's, let's be frank, it's night timber and, and that's about it, really, of any, of any real pedigree going back beyond 20 mm -hmm. years. And certainly none of them may have any, to my knowledge, sparkling rosé, Sir Lee. Mm -hmm. We've always kept back, you know, between four and 500 bottles of every vintage, apart from 08, which we only kept back uh, 200. The 2010 is likely to be the next sort of iteration of this collection because it's tasting phenomenal. And it was a really interesting year anyway. And, but the wonderful tool that we've, developed by doing that is that we get to give these little snapshots to to, to former years so i picked 08 and i picked 10 there were two very ripe vintages ripe harvests quite small harvests as well 10 well, 10 wasn't that small but you know it was quite interesting it, it it was a year that got saved by some very late august sunshine mm. <laughs> that really drove up the sugar levels but just really fascinating wines the pair of them showed so well um, and being able to just taste these things and, you know, talk about 0405, 06, which, you know, there was quite a lot of continuity between those three wines because they were made in exactly the same way, in the same tank. Or Richard would pick, um, because at the time, Richard owned Hotel de Vannes in Malmaison. So in April, he'd come to Dad and he'd say, what day am I harvesting my fruit this year? Um, and Dad would have to pick a weekend in October and say that's when you're harvesting <laughs> eight months in advance because Richard then just bust a load of songs and and anyone else who wasn't working that weekend down to the estate weekend. had a big party up in up at Anna, you know looked after them uh, for the weekend and they picked the whole lot uh, that it would all get pressed to chapel down all get thrown into the same tank fermented using the same yeast every year and then bottled in the August and that was that was how you they made Bathroom Rose. And so wow. it was really interesting. They were the most sort of consistent stylistically. But then as a result, you could see the real vintage variation showing through really well. So 04 and 05 were quite right years. 06, though, was this huge cropping year, you know, sort of 2018 levels of crop, but not quite the same ripeness. Mm -hmm. And so you'd, you sort of saw, saw this slight tail up in, in quality of the 06. It's still a really good wine, still really interesting, but just lack some of the concentration. And it was really interesting because, you know, you get that. The wonderful thing about always doing a vintage and not doing a not, not being a non-vintage product is that it's a very, it's a very sort of season-driven product. So every year it was slightly different. It was, yeah, but what a wine, what a wine. I, I am slightly petrified that one day I'll have to make it without dad and I'm, I, I find it quite terrifying. <laughs> you know, it's, it's <laughs> that, well, that's, that's, that's a very long time away if our listener you know wanted to try some of these or how many of these wines are, would they be able to source you know if they came down to to balfour or you know fired off an email I, I, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of these now it's it's basically all gone apart from some library stock for future events but if they wanted to source some of these are, are there some of them still in existence they could purchase i found john mobs actually put me onto it i found some 2010 online and very reasonably priced it's only 45 quid 
as as um as we're recording so i'm looking at his website now and and if we'll we'll include a a, a link in our bios when this episode goes out actually there's some there's some nice red buttons under the wines that you can press and it will take you straight to where you can source them so yeah he's found some as you said 2010 which you've just mentioned uh some of the 14 some of the 18 yeah um, i'm impressed you've found found some 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 14 that's that's been that was harder to find, for me to find. I, I I struggled, but yeah, 2010 I think was it's worth it's worth a punt at 45 quid. It's, it's worth worth trying. The problem was it was all in clear glass. Now we've yes. now we've moved to darker and light uh, strike, light strike. Now I I um I need to ask you. I mean, this tasting sounds phenomenal. I, I'm aware that there were some very high powered names there. I understand the Genesis. Um, so my first question: Did did she say anything about me? Did she, did you mention me? Uh, no, no, she talks a lot about Brad. I, I understand. Did, did she have anything nice to say about your wines? If there isn't a press embargo on what she said, I don't know, there, there might well be. But if, if you can repeat it, did she say anything nice about you or your wines? Uh, yeah. So I, so she did say something nice about my wines. And it, it's lovely. It's it's Yeah, it's a career highlight. I, I She awesome. was really nice about the wines and she said, well done. Awesome. Um, and I, yeah, I think to have her say, well done, was pretty huge actually that's, <laughs> that's only one of those ones i'd made the rest of it with dads so hang on so you've so but but you've had um so you've had good compliments off jamie good which featured on the italian wine podcast with, with the wonderful polly hammond you've had huge johnson say nice things yeah you've now added Jancis robinson to your collection i mean yep. this is just in a game of uh english winemaker top trumps you're, you're pretty high up there i understand that our favorite german was also that Anne Kriebel. Did did she mention me? Did she say did she say anything about me? Yes. She asked how you were and how you were doing. She wanted to know if you were okay. She was a bit concerned about your headwear. <laughs> concerned about my headwear and dismayed <laughs> at my German. Like, she was concerned about your German. She finally got around to listening to our trailer. And yeah, she also asked me what what you were talking about when you said something about the green bays I, I, I think it's something to do with pool um uh, yeah oh dear I, I did ask uh, and if she'd listened to the maker and the merchant uh and her thoughts on it and she just said ich nichten lichten <laughs> <laughs> but and who we've obviously mentioned before on this podcast is brilliant oh um, my god is she fantastic no, yeah. it was it was a pleasure. Actually, we had some amazing people around the table, and we were really it was it was a huge honour. Also, utterly bloody terrifying. And um, yeah, imagine you know, was, my my boss was there, so Richard was there with his wife. The Janses, like, and and Anne were both there. Um, as you can tell, I'm really comfortable talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> and then there were some other really cool people, really interesting people, um, with great palates, uh, including John Mobbs tasting wines that my dad had made and that I, I, a couple of which I'd had something to do with. And it was very humbling. It was very enjoyable and utterly shit your pants terrifying as well. So, you know, it was, it was a wonderful combination. To now have the Jancis and Anne and these other people. Um, and of course, you know, you, you mentioned John Mobbs, uh, you know, John's palate. And the way he articulates, it's not just that John's got a great palate, the way he articulates what he's tasting. Mm. I mean, he is, he's, he's one of the very best non-trade. The ability to taste and communicate that is amongst the very best I've ever encountered 
in my years in the trade and, and dealing with you know people that surround it and are, and are part of it in many ways I mean I think John should consider himself part of the trade to be honest given how good great British wine is but, but anyway it sounds like it was a thrilling event but I think we'll we'll just take a short break and then Ferg and I will be back to discuss wine tasting Welcome back to The Maker and The Merchant. Um, following our discussion of this archive rosé collection, which sounds wonderful, Ferg, you had the brilliant idea of blind tasting each other. Now, we've I'd like both... it noted that actually my brilliant idea was that I would blind you. You blind me every time we speak, Ferg. Yes, you suggested blind tasting me. Uh, and I said, oh, yeah, I, I intentionally misread that. I went, oh, yes, blind tasting each other. Because a blind test, I think blind testing is brilliant and I love it, but simultaneously I despise it and I think it's awful. One of the things I don't like about it is it's often seen, particularly to non-trade people, it's often seen as a bit of a parlour trick and it isn't. Blind tasting takes a huge amount of skill and dedication, not something you can just, you know, you can't just rock up and do it, it's something you need to do what I'm doing here, Ferg, you'll notice I'm getting excuses in for how I, you know, for why I fail with blind tasting dramatically. You realise that this helps me as well, right? Oh, actually, well, that's fine then. Let's carry on with it. Yeah. You know, you've got it's a blind taste. so hard. It is really tough. And, you know, wine quality where it is today, you know, wine is very good. Wine is also becoming more homogenised. So there are certain there are certain wines at certain price points we're tasting, you go, know, I just could be from anywhere. But it's, it's not a parlour trick. No. Any, anyway. Blind tasting. Why do we blind? Why do you blind taste? If you blind taste, why are you blind tasting? What's the purpose? For me, there's not a great deal. I don't do. I don't blind taste. I don't, it's not something I need to do because I taste. So, I, but I know what's inside my tanks because well, I've got a computer program. Because you've so. put it there, and I put it there. <laughs> what if I, along with Mister Balfour Lynn, got in mm. and like moved the tanks around? But didn't tell you. Yeah, no, I'd know still. <laughs> I do know what all my tanks taste like. But what you're telling me is you don't, is you don't really do a, a great deal of blind tasting. No, I did um, more blind tasting while I was at Plumpton than I've done in the rest of my career. To be honest, it's not so. It's not something I need. If I want to benchmark <laughs> Blanc de Blancs, I'll do that blind. But I know the Blanc de Blancs, and I know that they're English, mm -hmm. or. I know that there's a mixture of English and French. You know, it's I'm never fully blind. It's always there's always a structure. There's always there's some kind of sighted element yeah, behind I, I, it. I know what I'm looking at. But actually, um, so there's a, a blind there is a blind element there. So you know, why do we blind taste? I, I think firstly we've all got preconceptions, all of us. And you know, whether whether you're winemaking or, or doing this for assessment, you, you want to be you want to make that assessment accurately, but un, in an unbiased way. And there's a there's a there's a saying in the trade, you know, a glance at the label is worth 30 years experience in the industry. And that's definitely true. I remember once talking to a supermarket buyer. This was many, many years ago uh, and, and uh, said, you know, so what, what's your approach to being a success at blind tasting? He said the best way to pass a blind tasting is to cheat. So <laughs> yeah, I was like, OK, yeah, I'll, I'll bear that in mind when I when I do my diploma. But I think blind tasting is the best way to taste wines. But I was thinking about that, that approach to blind tasting. So I thought, given what you've just said, that you don't really blind taste, I might sort of quickly run through maybe my approach to blind tasting, that would be which really is helpful. <laughs> it's hardly the best approach 
there must be jokes at this stage. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if they'll help you or hinder you, to be honest. So um, you, you mentioned it there, the, the SAT, the SAT. Obviously, my wine educational background comes from WSET. You know, I went through WSET. I now teach WSET, and I'm an accredited WSET uh, practitioner, tutor. But they have the SAT, which is the systematic approach to tasting. And I absolutely love it because it breaks tasting down into the fundamentals. There's three key things you need to be looking at. So what does this wine look like? What does this wine smell like? And what does it taste like? So I always think that when you're blind tasting a wine, you're you're basically being Columbo. So when we're blind, I expect you to put a big Mac on. Yeah, you know, a Mac on. <laughs> Sorry, I'll get my coat. You know, get an old stubbed out cigar and a, a slightly lazy eye. But what you have to do is you're gathering evidence and facts when you're blind tasting. Because the, the, the wonderful thing about wine is there's nowhere to hide. If you learn what you have to look for and how you find those things, you can figure out what any wine is doing. Yeah. And this is why blind tasting is so difficult, because you need to blind taste and blind taste and blind taste and continually hone, you know, your nose and your palate. But I think the basic thing fairly straightforward. So the first thing you're going to do is obviously look at the wine. The, the broader rule of thumb, the first, when you're looking at wines, white or red, you're trying to ascertain how old is this thing and what kind of climate does it come from? Yeah. So it was a very, very broad brushstroke here. So white wine, you know, young white wine, water white, old white wine, you know, golden, amber, much deeper colour. Yeah. The more colour it displays, so regardless of whatever the colour is, the more colour it has would generally reflect a warmer climate, right? Because the grapes are outside, yeah. they're more ripe, thicker skins, more flesh, more colour. Now, there are some grape varieties that don't fit that. Sauvignon Blanc's always pretty pale, right? Mm -hmm. Even in, in a warm glass of thin skin. Right? But yeah. as, as a rule of thumb, like the more colour this wine has, the warmer the climate, it, it's easy to tell with red. The more sort of golden amber that colour, the older. Okay, Red wine's the opposite. Red wine loses colour. So young red wine is kind of like purpley ruby. As it gets older, it goes russet, garnet, and eventually brown. So I, I guess what I'm saying there, it's not, you can't look at a wine and go, well, if it's brown, it means it's at least 10 years old. No. It, it doesn't work like that. It's not that hard to face. But if it's brown, it's, it's, it's had more exposure to oxygen, which would suggest it's older. The deeper, more intense that colour, the warmer the climate. It's easier to tell that with reds than it is with whites. Yeah. Now, again, there are some varieties that are thinner skin, so they're never going to give you loads and loads of colour. But what you mustn't do is start building your conclusion off only one piece of evidence. So a detective wouldn't go into a house where there's been a crime, take one fingerprint and gather no other evidence and go, this is this conclusively proves who the, the perpetrator of this crime is. So that's your first piece of evidence. What's it look like? So you're kind of going, I think this is probably slightly older and um, it's from a warm climate. So what, what you're trying to do is build a picture. And so you, you might start with, imagine a map of the, the world. So you start going, well, it's older. That doesn't tell me where it's come from. Although I know that there are certain regions that are more well known for making wines that will age rather than others. True. But you might go, well, you know, because of the depth of colour on this, I think that this is perhaps from a warmer place. So you might go, well, probably not uh, northern Italy. It might yeah. be southern Italy, or it might be, as a Britain, it might be Australian or Argentina. So this, these are the kind of things. So the idea is that you're, you're going to build a funnel. So you might write down, I think it could be from these five countries. And as you go through, you knock those countries off. Or in fact, you might go back and start again and go, there's something else happening in this wine that's taken me away. So the next thing you're going to look at is the nose. What you're looking at in the nose, I think primarily you're looking to try and figure out what grape variety it is. So we know that grape varieties have specific fingerprints. So... Sauvignon Blanc is often, you know, sort of gooseberries or elderflower or, or passion fruit. 
you know, Pinot Noir is often sort of red fruit, cherries and strawberries, and Pinot Grigio uh, always smells of disappointment. And Pinot so, belongs in the bin. Yeah, <laughs> the best. <laughs> the, the, I was doing the thing about food pairing. Do you know what the best pairing for Pinot Tarte is? What? In a bin fire, <laughs> which is what it smells like. So what you're trying to do when you, when you, when you get to the nose, yeah. part of buying tasting is you're trying to assess quality. And I think we've talked about that in a previous episode about balance, length, intensity, complexity. So I don't, I'm not going to go into great detail here. Blick. So you might be going, this is, um, you know, it's really intense and complex. Okay, so all the way through this process, you're trying to do, you're trying to do that. But I'm just going to focus on the other bits that you look at. So you start looking for, you know, I made Marcus. a joke there, but, you know, Marcus, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon, sort of cassis and, uh, and, and black currants and blackberries and Pinot Noir is, is strawberries and cherries, is it, you know, yeah. The first thing you're trying to figure out is what great variety is it? Okay. I think mm. the next thing you're then trying to work out is an idea of, again, climate starting to touch on production. So we know that in a warmer climate, a wine would probably display more darker fruit characters in a, if it was red. Yeah. In a, in a cool climate, be more red fruit characters. In, in a white wine, in a warmer climate, we might expect more stone tropical fruit characters. In a cooler climate for a white, we might expect more sort of citrus and green fruit for example these are again these are very very broad brush strokes um and if anybody wants to explore this further i'm very happy to have a conversation because i think wine tasting is fascinating so from your appearance of this wine let's imagine a red wine that we've got and it's really deeply colored that said to you maybe warm climate when you're smelling it you're looking for a nose that would reflect that so you go actually there is a load of blackberry and black currant and it's really dark fruit okay that fits in with this being a warm club which is what the parents suggested to me it was warm climate. The nose is doing the same. If you get to the nose and it isn't suggesting that, then you need to reset and start trying to figure it out. So you see how you're yeah, building evidence, you're gathering. Yeah. So you've not formed a conclusion, you're just getting ideas. So you've done variety climate, then you start looking for your production methods. So has this wine seen oak? So you're looking for kind of vanilla, smoke, toast, all of those kind of things. So when you're smelling this wine, variety, climate, production method, then you might start thinking about the age of the wine. So you're going, hang on, from my appearance... I thought that it was maybe from a warm climate, but I also thought it might be quite old because it was it was garnet or brown. So we know that as red wine ages, you start to get characters kind of leather and earth and tobacco and what we call tertiary characters. So you're going, what variety is it? Does it reflect the, the kind of climate I suspected from the appearance? What can I learn about the production method for this wine? And is it giving me any indication that it might be old? Then the palate. And I think it's a really interesting thing when people are tasting wine, everybody gets really caught up on what it tastes like because you're tasting it, right? You're going, oh, I get strawberries and cherries and forgotten dreams and disappointment mm. and self-loathing yeah, yeah. and, and, and all of that sort of thing. When, so when you taste this wine, when you, when you put it into your mouth, forget what you thought you could smell. Forget about strawberries and cherries and leather and cinnamon and all of that. Yeah. When it's in your mouth, you focus on acid, tannin, alcohol and sweetener because all of those things, they're measurable, okay? Mm. They can be analysed. Yeah. And they really give you the pointers. So you're tasting this imaginary red wine, really mm. deep colour. I think it's warm climate. You've, no, you've nosed it and you've gone. It's like loads of really dark fruit. That also suggests warm climate. You then taste it and you're thinking, if this is a warm climate wine, I'm expecting perhaps slightly lower levels of acid, probably higher levels of tannin and alcohol and sweetener. But sweetness, obviously, you know, sugar generally becomes alcohol. Those things have to measure up. And if they don't, either you've misjudged it or the winemaker's done something. So those should hopefully start pinning this down. You then also know certain varieties have those things in different 
ways. So a sauvignon blanc should always be high acid. A, a German reason, a, a reason should always be high acid. To maintain the, the red, what the imaginary red wine cabernet should be high tannin. Some mm. high tannin variety should probably have fairly high acid. Maybe you know moderate to high alcohol, depending on where it's from. So if from the appearance in the nose you've gone, I'm pretty sure this is a cap. So you get yeah. to the palate and there's no acidity, really low tannin. And it's clearly low alcohol. You go, well, what well, has something going on here? That's not a cap sauvignon. Or if it mm. is, what's the winemaker done to it? Taste the wine a couple of times, get those things in place, then go back and taste it for the flavour. So go, okay, I figured out the acid, the tannin, the alcohol, the sweetness. I'll just go back and sort of, you know, pull the air through my mouth back to the olfactory bulb. But hang on, yeah, I'm reminded I got the black currants and the blackberries and, and whatever. All through this, as we said, you're thinking about like balance, length, intensity, complexity. So you're doing your quality assessment simultaneously. You see, what I'm doing here, dear listener, is giving Ferg so much information, there's no way he's going to apply it when he blind tastes the wine I've sent him. No, I'm but... so, I'm in so much trouble. You know, you talk about how you're going to be Columbo, I'm going to be Frank Bloody Drebin. <laughs> you, you shot once, twice, and then Jim fell. <laughs> once you've done all of that, you've got a whole load of notes written down, and you start to pull out the stuff and go, hang on a minute, what here actually all makes sense? So. The appearance of the wine suggested something that was old and something that was from a warm climate. The nose was dark fruit, but it was specifically kind of black currant, blackberry, all of that. That ties into could be Cabernet. It was it was black fruit, which reflects and confirms warm climate. I then got oak. Uh, so they've used oak, so it's probably more prune, but oak and Cabernet, that goes together. I'm figuring that out. Also, I thought the wine was old from its appearance and on the nose, I got those, those tertiary characters of tobacco and leather. And you've then tasted it. And you've gone, actually, it's reasonably high acid. That's standard for Cabernet, even in the warm climate. Very high tannin. That's standard for Cabernet. Highish alcohol. That's standard for Cabernet. And retasting the flavours on the palate, I continue to get blackberry, blackcurrant, oak, vanilla, and old stuff. All of this is pointing me in the direction of a Cabernet Sauvignon in our imaginary red. What you then do is you go, well, where does Cabernet Sauvignon come from? What, what gets difficult here is uh, it comes from everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> even England. Normally, when you're buying tasted, particularly from a, from a WSET exam perspective, they're not looking to catch you out. They're not going to give you like a really weird. Yeah, I don't know. This, this is this, this is grown under glass. In, yeah, in, this this is a Scandinavian middle. Cabernet Sauvignon. They're like nobody's going to come. Out. So what yeah. you then try and do is you sort of go, well, if I'm being given obvious, where does Cab Soap come from? Like Bordeaux's the first one. You then might go around and get Bocunawara well, in Australia, for example. Actually, there's quite a bit of it in South Africa, Stellenbosch, and then you start just attributing. Well, hang on, does this, does this kind of feel like, well, actually, like the fruit is super ripe and the alcohol is quite high. I don't think it's Bordeaux. And if it is Bordeaux, it's like it's a hot vintage. But then if the last hot vintage we had, you know, where does it? So there's a load of other stuff that comes into this. I've done a very poor job of communicating this, actually, because no, I didn't prepare for it. I've just, this has just all come off the top of my head. I've made absolutely no note. But your conclusion is basically pulling all of this together and goes, what does it tell us? And your conclusion, this is really important, your conclusion has to make sense to the evidence you've gathered. So if you've written that note that I've just said, that, you know, you sort of go, it's it's big and dark and rich and old and blackberry and blackcurrant, and you then go, I think this is a cool climate Pinot Noir. Well, that doesn't... That doesn't your, your, your examiner would go, you don't know what you're talking about. Whereas if you make a conclusion that fits the evidence, it can still be the overall the wrong conclusion, but it yeah. fits the evidence you've got. So a lot of people get a bit worked up in blind tasting for exam, they feel they've got to get it bang on. Yeah. And when you're buying tasting on exam, you get very few marks for the conclusion. You get all the marks for accurate note taking and then showing that you can follow that logic. Makes sense. So that SAT, systematic approach to tasting, is brilliant. That's brilliant, mate. Thank um, you. 
that's my approach to blind tasting. I, for, uh, before we sort of close this down, actually get into our whys. Mm. I don't know because you don't do a lot of blind tasting, but I'll ask you the question anyway. Do you have a best and a worst blind tasting memory? I called, I, I actually, yeah, I got blinded. Bizarrely, I got blinded very recently by my assistant winemaker. He bought a bottle in. It was sparkling, poured it. I called sparkling Alvarino traditional method three grams of dosage. Well, I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? What? <laughs> Funnily enough, yes, it is blindingly obvious. It isn't. That isn't obvious. <laughs> I hope that's not what you've sent me because I am not going to get that. Oh, you're not going to get what I've sent you anyway. But no, I'm but not. I'm not. That was, it was. Um, yeah, I was pretty smug about that one actually. That was. That was. That was a good day. Have I got worse? Have well, I done badly? I have to be honest. Most tastings, I don't. I'm, I don't. I don't taste well. I don't. I, I... <laughs> Neither do my. Um, but my blind tastings terrible. I'll tell you my two best because I've got on, two man. best. The, the first one, I was invited around to some friends for dinner and they'd just come back from France. So I, right. I, that was, I knew that. Tasting away, really great time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, he, and he pulled out a wine, said, oh, just do this blind. Like, okay, but it, not in a parlour trick kind of way. He's a big wine mm. fan. So it was all, you know, it wasn't that parlour trick. White wine. So I've gone, it's got to be French because you've just come back from France. But he, he stayed dumb. So I'm tasting it and it was kind of quite stone, somewhere between sort of green fruit and stone, but really creamy sort of laziness to it. Felt like it had some oak in there. So I'm going, well, you know, it's France. It's got good, it's got a good level of acidity. I, I think this is a, a white burgundy. And he went, no, it isn't. Went, okay. Is it French though? Yes, it is. So I retasted it and went, okay, there's, there's, there's a good bit of acidity here, but it's got cream. It's got like a real fatness and weight in the mouth. I'm going to plump that this is a white Bordeaux. And he said, yes, it is. But I want you to tell me a bit more about it. So I'm like, oh, I'm happy I've got white Bordeaux. Yeah, to be honest, if um, you expect any more than region out of me, so you're not. <laughs> I'm, I'm expecting a lot more. But I, I got to white Bordeaux, and so I went, well, it's, you know, it's a semi-on Sauvignon blend. There is good acidity, but I think there's quite a bit of semi-on because it's really fat and rich. And you went, it's not that. I went, yeah, but it's a white. So I then said, is it a white Cabernet Sauvignon? And it was. What? because So it was a Cabernet Sauvignon, yeah. like as in red Cabernet Sauvignon, but pulled straight off the skin. So not because there is a white clonal variant. Yeah. wasn't that but the only reason I got it was because it, it, I knew it was a white Bordeaux but it, it wasn't a Sem so like it, it's got to be something really weird I kind of never have got that uh, so I, I I got there I was guided there I didn't just pull that out the hat Although my other best moment which I did genuinely get without help uh, I was on a buying trip in Argentina and we'd gone for lunch um, the group of us, we'd gone to a, a great little restaurant called Azafran in Mendoza City. Uh, and they've got a huge wine collection. And we started pulling out wines to blind each other, just buying them from the wine shop. Nice. Uh, and it was a, a lovely French guy, Nico. But he was, he was he pulled out this wine. He was sat next to me and he went, blind taste this then. And it was a sweet wine. And there's not a lot of that in Argentina. I blind tasted it. And I said, um, OK, you know, it's, it's obviously sweet. It's got botrytis. Is this a sweet Petit Monsang? And it was. And that was, I still don't know how I got that. That was my best blind. So he stuck with me for the rest of the trip. Like, this guy's really good. And by the end of the trip, he was like, yeah, that was just luck, wasn't it, that you got that? It's like, yes, it was. You just knew Pussy Manzang was a variety. I, I just knew that, I, I think it's Tarasis. I knew that there was someone out there doing it. Yeah. So ultimately, my worst, and I have many, I'll give you my two worst, and then we'll crack on with actually tasting our wines. My two worst. The first one we would... Um, buying at the oxford wine company so load of wines blind and i got this wine and i waxed lyrical about it for about 12 minutes i was like this is clearly serious quality it's got delicate creaminess it's got minerality everything's weaving around wonderful exhibition of fruit but it's it's really classy it's layered i mean this is clearly without question this is 
I'm putting it in Merceau, but it could be like Polina Monrochet, she signed Monrochet, Merceau. I'm putting this yeah. smack bang, white burgundy, bang in, 40 quid. It was a Chardonnay. That's good. It was sub eight pounds from Chile. Why? That was, that was embarrassing. My worst wine tasting moment was in my diploma. But in my unit three exam, the last one, the big one, I've got to the last paper and the last the, the, the last tasting paper is just, here's three wines blind, what are they? So I'm tasting this wine, red. I can't remember, I went through the tasting note and I put it, I ended up putting it as a Californian Pinot Noir. Yeah. It was a Loire Valley Cabernet Franc. And the, right, so firstly, how do you confuse? Secondly, I have never, ever before or since missed a Loire Cabernet Franc. It's not, everybody's got something that they can hit every time and for me it was always Loire Cabernet Franc I never missed it how on earth I've got from, right, from that to the, the moment as well because they're, where they're quite different wines aren't they I mean um, they're distinct from each other yeah yeah but you, you know luckily I've done I've done well enough on all the other wines in all the other like there was one of the yeah. wines in my final paper I got it down to the producer but I was being a bit arrogant by guessing the producer but ultimately everything I've said there is to say that blind tasting is really difficult and Ferg, you and I are now going to blind taste these wines, and I'm not expecting to do very well. Let's crack on. Let's do it. Okay, so there we go. I've um, done my best to not really give you any helpful advice as to how to approach blind tasting. The wonderful Mike Boyne from Bintu, who, uh, as we may have mentioned in the past, one of this country's very best wine merchants, very kindly sent the bottles to us free of charge, but Mike Boyne very, very kindly, very generously has sent uh, a bottle to me. He's obviously discussed the bottle that he sent me with Ferg um, and he sent a bottle to Ferg on my behalf. And I've discussed that wine with Mike. But uh, in all seriousness, you know, a huge thanks to Mike Boyne. He's done this entirely off his own back. He approached both Ferg and me and said, you know, I'd like to send you each bottle. Um, and it's incredibly kind of him. And we really do appreciate it. So, Ferg, um, have you got your bottle open Ready to go. Get it open. Let's get it in the I'll, I'll get it open. So, first up, okay. I, have, I have a uh, white wine. Now, this is interesting because that's not what I said I was going to send you. <laughs> I, <laughs> I now don't know what you've got. Oh, yes. You, well, you, neither do I. The wrong package. <laughs> oh, well, Mike Boyne, thank you very much for, for, for this wine. He's he's um, really thrown a So smile. this is really interesting because now you can have, I'm going to try and blind taste it without blind tasting it. So I'm relying on you. Genuinely, that, that that's not what um, that's not, Mike and I discussed. What, this is amazing. I have no idea what you've got. And, and, <laughs> and the issue here is because I knew, I, well, I thought I knew what you were getting. I was going to sound like I really knew what I was doing. <laughs> so I was going to go, yeah, but you need to look for that and you need to find this. Okay, so let's try and figure right. this out. Let's okay. try and figure this out together. So I now, dear listener, uh, Ferg's mum, I don't know what Ferg has. So Ferg's going to try and figure out what he's got. But based on Ferg's descriptions of the wines, because I don't have a bottle, I'm also going to try and figure it out simultaneously. So that actually makes this uh, even more exciting. So um, Ferg, let's do the tilt the glass to 45 degrees against a pale white background. Yeah. Um, and please describe to me the colour. So what colour is it? And describe to me the depth of the colour. Is it is it pale? Is it deeply coloured? Give me Oh, it's quite that. deeply coloured. This is this is a wine of, that has seen some oak, I would say. I I mean I I'm now I'm supposed to be looking at colour, but I got a big old whiff of oak just by tilting it away from me. It's quite dark, but it's yeah, you're pushing into quite ripe straw territory. Okay. So it's got sort of um so it's quite deep and it's yeah. got like a, a strawy gold. So straw to me is like a golden colour. Golden. Yeah. So 
deeply coloured would maybe suggest a, a warmer climate, mm-hmm. perhaps. That golden colour would perhaps suggest some form of level of oxidation, which could come through ageing, could come through time in oak. So, we, we, you know, that's all that we're pinning down at the moment. You could maybe start to think, well, hang on, I don't really see this kind of colour from something like Sauvignon Blanc, because that's quite a pale skin. Yeah. So we've got deeply, deeply coloured straw. As it's under a stelvet and it's got that dark colour, well, it wouldn't matter how long it's been in the bottle, essentially, because the, the, the mm-hmm. OTR is going to be pretty much zero. That's pretty much all of it, actually. Sorry. I thought I, so, I, yeah, I was, so, was going to say, no. oh, no, it's, so it means it's not spent long in the bottle either. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a really good point there. Now, obviously, during an exam you wouldn't see that it was a screw cap yeah i'm just taking but you but you're but knowing that and seeing that it is deeply colored we know that that sorry knowing that it's golden we know mm-hmm. that that's got to probably involving oxid you know controlled oxidation we can't really start to draw many conclusions from this at this point other than you might start going well what what wines tend to look like this i know that good chardonnays uh, or chardonnays made in a particular style might look like this but then you know actually suave with a bit of age could look like mm-hmm. This, but would but would Suave spend that long in a barrel before going under screw cap? You wouldn't know that in the exam. Let's look at the nose, and I, I'd like you to go through this in a, in a specific way, please. Okay. Tell me about the intensity. So, is this leaping out of the glass, or do you have to stick your nose right in and Columbo around? So, not what does it smell like, but how much aroma is? There? Uh, I'd say it's medium intensity. You start to go well. Grapes that are really light that I've got to stick my nose in. Italian Pinot Grigio, mm. you know, from its appearance, you wouldn't expect this to be Italian Pinot Grigio. You kind of part of blind tasting is ruling out what is working out what it isn't as well as what it is. I'd like you to go through the aromas, but in a, in a specific way, please. What's the what are the primary fruit characters? There's a little bit of apricot. Okay, so we're getting a stony, maybe sort of. Well, it's not quite tangerine, but it's sort of there's that sort of orangey citrus. Maybe maybe peel rather or rind. Maybe tangerine. Okay. So we've got citrus clusters coming in, but this sounds like it's driven by stone fruit clusters, so apricot and nectarine. So great varieties we've got here: we peach, apricot, citrus. So you start going, could be Chardonnay. What other varieties? Like give you? For me, but then I, I, I've got an inkling. I know the variety, but I'll leave that. I'll put that to one side for now. Well, I, well, I, I think a good approach here at this point is to go: what varieties could this be? So yes. you know, peach, apricot, fruit stony some citrus so what what you do here is you write down five or six grape varieties that you think it could be so in my head from those descriptions i'm going chardonnay riesling viognier maybe like a really good quality mm-hmm. pinot blanc would, would give you those mm-hmm. any other white varieties that you think i feel like it might be a chenin chenin that's a really good shout chenin so we've got those five grape varieties mm-hmm. Let, let's keep those for the minute they don't necessarily all fit with our initial evidence, which was the appearance, but we've got those five varieties. What sort of secondary characters is this one giving you? There's a nice nut bunt of oak here, but it's it's quite it's quite well controlled. It's slightly buttery as well, which sits sits quite well. So we, we're probably thinking that this has obviously oak content. What form is that oak taking? There's a little bit. It's I put it somewhere in French. There's no there's none of that big sort of American style stuff, but it's quite. Is there any toast in there? Sort of thinking about maybe the level of toast. Yeah, on that I'm one. trying to find it. Trying to dig out a toast. It's sort of no. Okay, it's a, so just a nice sort of hint of French oak just in the background. You've mentioned buttery, creamy, so this has probably got some form of mallow on it. Now, if we then go back to these five grape varieties that we've come up with, uh, Riesling was one of them. Now, firstly, Riesling doesn't tend to look like this wine looks. Riesling, you don't get mallow oak. Oh, Chardonnay, I think it could still be Chardonnay from the appearance and description. Okay. Um, I think it could still be Viognier. It's maybe you've not you've not you've not described it as being especially aromatic, so that that's questionable. 
It was quite alluring. I'm quite excited to taste it. So of, of the five varieties we had, mm. and, and, you know, there's, there's other things that this could be. We're, we're sticking to fairly mainstream varieties. We're not starting to think about, like, maybe slightly more esoteric Italian varieties. Or, you know, we've we've not mentioned the possibility of this being a white Rioja, you know. No. So we, we've got quite bright fruit. The colour and the oak influence could suggest it's a white Rioja. I think it could still, from your description, could still be Chardonnay. I think Chenin Blanc's a really good shout as well. Now, to carry on our exploration of the nose, could you describe if there are any tertiary notes? I wouldn't say there is any. It's it feels it feels quite fresh. So we're in yeah. a position where we're saying, you know, really good bright. Primarily, fruit is driven by a stony cluster, but there are other things around it: oranginess and citrus peels and things like that. It's got oak, it's got mallow, but it's not really showing me any tertiary notes of like nuttiness, smokiness, honeycomb. So it's probably quite a youthful. So that's quite interesting because it's got that golden colour which suggests some form of age yet the mm. fruit is still really bright so i think you're starting to go this is really well done because although there's a, a, there's a bit of oxidation here to give me that sort of more golden color the fruit's still yeah. really bright for so for, you're starting to think maybe from a quality perspective this is actually pretty good I so where makes where makes pretty good stone fruit driven well oaked hint of mallow wines so at this point i think you're going i'm probably in a, a like a, a slightly warmer place but i'm not sure it could, could be chardonnay could be shen could be like good white rioca i'm probably going to knock out suave do you see mm -hmm. the, the sort of thought process i'm going through and yeah, no, I like it. I... If, if if anybody that actually knows how to blind taste is listening to me going this is dreadful i don't <laughs> actually have the wine in front of me we started to build some clues right so i think chardonnay shenin white rioca still stand is it a bit too ripe for white rioca because white rioca is sort of a more marginal it's not a hot climate is it rioca it's, it's moderated we, we, what we've done now is we've, we've written down three or four things that we think this could be and we've identified a potential grape variety we thought about the climate this is probably from somewhere moderate to warmer it's probably not cool climate in terms of production we know it's had mallow it's had good quality controlled oak in terms of age it's probably actually not that old because the fruit is still so fresh so you see you've got all these clues and you go well what do those clues indicate what wines uh, and what what do those clues point to it not being? Well, it's, it's not a New Zealand Sauvignon. As you said, it's probably not a Californian Chardonnay because we'd expect that to be bigger and more, more mallow, more buttery. So mm. you, you're working out what it is as well as what it isn't. And I think working out what it isn't is a really key part of blind tasting. Let's go to the palate. What I'd like you to do, for please, is taste it. But I just want to focus on the structural stuff. That's quite nice. Okay. So it's quite nice. So we yeah. like it. That's good. I'd say I'd say uh, the acid profile surprises me. It feels, it feels like the acid higher than... Well, I, I mean, we've been talking about warm climate and we've been talking about mm -hmm. it, so you sort of assume acid, acid's going to be quite low but it's not it's quite a good tartness to it you know okay it's quite high um, acid quite high um, how, acid. How, how dry is it i I'd, I'd this has got a few grams of sugar would, would you describe it as off dry or, or still know. dry but clearly with a bit of rs it's still definitely dry but it's definitely got rs it's got i think that's got, i think that's an important thing to pick out there because although the mm. wine is dry there's a bit of rs so again from a climate point of view you're probably thinking well where's going to give me where am i going to get maybe bigger sugars but still retention of acidity mm. or or has the winemaker really done something here where like they've picked it early for my big acidity but somehow like they've done something with the sugar so dry but with some rs high acid how does the alcohol feel i put it somewhere between medium and high it feels like it's it's got a good weight so yeah i'd i'd say i'd say medium to high so let's call that medium plus alcohol so the the other structural element and it, when you're tasting on the palate it's the measurables that come first what's the body of this Put it at medium plus, yeah. Helping guide us towards the variety and also climate. So let's go back to white Rioja. White Rioja, high acid, I think that's reasonable to expect. Dry, 
that's reasonable to expect with but with some rs i've not had it's usually dry dry it's usually it? like properly dry right yeah medium plus alcohol a medium plus body i think that's fair mm. i don't think that the way you've described the sugar in this wine i think that knocks out white rioca what's going to happen like... is every everything that i say through this tasting note is going to be revealed that it's the exact opposite it's... of what i've yeah, suggested yeah. that's what's going and to happen. my wine was a white <laughs> rioca <laughs> so we could knock out i think white rioca now, of course, there's there's all sorts of other wines that we've not even started to consider. But yeah, I think I think there's a little bit of bot here. I don't know. Does that could we then start looking further east and going? Okay, yeah. could it be something Hungarian-y, or is that too? Or is so, that no, no? So one of the reasons I've not gone through everything it could be is just for the for the time of this recording Sheer and getting into a yeah, podcast, yeah, and 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 also I don't know what I'm doing. But yeah. that's the really interesting. You start to go, well, hang on a minute. Like, what about a dry ferment? Yeah, that's got because you could get that's a, a feasible one you can get is a dry ferment that's got a bit, a bit of RS. A, a, a little bit of RS in there high acid that fits dry but with a bit of RS that fits a dry ferment medium plus alcohol that's fair medium plus body it's a really good example the fruit profile fit and this is interesting because we said you know it smells like it's got mallow on it yet it's still high acid so that's giving us a clue about you know how how and when has this been picked so do you see what you're doing you're starting with a set of characters from some evidence yeah you're building more evidence knocking out suspects but then possibly introducing new suspects so i know obviously i suggested chardonnay and your initial thing is well i don't think it's a chardonnay which is very it's, fair but what you do no. is you rule it out you know if this was mm. a chardonnay from your description, it feels like it would be a new world Chardonnay. So you go, well, mm. from a, from the point of view of a WSET exam, they give you obvious because mm. right? WSET exams aren't, aren't trying to catch you out. But I think if you if you were to just explore the idea of is this a Chardonnay, I think you're squarely in the new world. Yes. But the description you've given us, it just doesn't feel like it's Australian or Californian. It, it just let's round off the palette because we've done the stru- the structural stuff, the really important mm. thing. In terms of your primary, secondary, tertiary notes, do they seem to agree? with what you experienced on the nose and is there anything else that's been added here or, or, or is there any are there any extra flavors that you didn't really get on the nose that you get on the palate? the oak comes through more strongly so you've got more there is more of that sort of vanilla-y note but the same fruits again so it's, it's sort of apricotty it's quite it's quite it's slightly cloying and it's got quite nice in, in <laughs> terms I, of that's why i'm bad at tasting because i just go oh, yeah i know i like this in, in terms of texture, <laughs> is it is it fresh and linear? Is it waxy? Is it oily? Because again, another another quite, it's not quite considered. oily, but I can't quite put that down. I, I was trying to work out if that's down to down to the that bit of RS, which which will be affecting that. But yeah, no, it's slightly sort of glycerol feel to it. So um, could this but be still quite fresh as well? I tend to find with dry foam there is some kind of something steely minerally that runs through it. I haven't I haven't found that. You know, the palette is is more there is there's a bit there's a there's a sit element to it but the, it's mm-hmm. not quite as pronounced as i thought it would be it's okay. more about the sort of your stone fruits there's a bit of pineapple-y so touching on tropical now okay. it's 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 pushing into that sort of you know the lemons it's more candied and it's it all feels a little bit further up the ripeness scale than ferment it would you just say would you say this is balanced yes how's the finish oh it's quite long yeah intensity intensity we said from the nose was sort of probably medium yeah, is that reflected on the palate? Is it a big burst of flavour or is it, again, is it a slowly building flavour? It's, it's potentially more of a medium plus. And complexity. See, I'm learning, I'm learning the words. You're getting it, you're getting it. And complexity, <laughs> I mean, you've described quite a bit, you know, a range of sort of it's, citrus it's, and stone fruit clusters, tropic, touching on tropical fruit, 
you know, mm-hmm. oak, mallow. So it feels like it's quite complex. So it's probably very good wine. Right? I, I, I've got a feeling this is a really nice bottle of wine. It's going gonna, it's gonna to turn out to be the cheapest one Mike Boyne has in his shop that he found at the bottom of the bottom well, of the stairs. So this is where we fall into a trap, and it's a trap you have to avoid blind tasting. Now, when you're doing WSET exams, you can't fall into this trap because you have no idea what they're going to set you. Where you fall into this trap is when you're blind tasting with your friend. And so, for example, if you're blind tasting with me, you're going, I know Lee's really into Argentina and Italy. And you've got a big, yeah. I bring a big hefty red to the table. Yeah. In your head, you're going, this has got to be something from Argentina. And it might not be. So what you mustn't do is try and second guess the actual person setting the wine. But what I'm doing here is going, I don't think Mike would throw something mainstream. From your description, I've got this down to being a very good South African Shenin. What are you going to say? What do you think it is? I don't know. You see, I, I went for Shenin early doors i'd gone completely off shenin after i started thinking about ferment i feel like i got obsessed over ferment and that i was really looking for it to be ferment yeah. and now i wonder if actually i should stick with shenin definitely no. to, to interject never tell yourself what it is because let the wine tell you what it is rather than you telling the wine what to do and we've all made that myself i've made that countless mm. countless countless times where you, you sort of latch on something and go it's got to be this so you then make the evidence fit your conclusion before you've gathered the rest of the evidence. We've all done it. I'm horrendous for it. Horrendous. No, no, and it's, it's that classic one of your 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 initial thoughts are usually right, but I can't. Yeah, I don't know. I can't shake. I can't shake Furman. Put us out of our misery. What is it? Okay. Because it's it's not That's what I thought out. I was sending you. <laughs> I can't wait to find out what you actually thought. <laughs> <laughs> what you actually thought you were sending me? It's the FMC. That is. I don't know if Mike is aware of this or not. I genuinely don't know. That is one of my absolutely favourite wines on the planet. That is, and and I tell you what you've done there, Ferg, which is really good. Yeah. You've picked up the little bit of Botrytis fruit. Um, oh, is Ken, that, so, is so the Botrytis is that a relevant note then? I, it, this it is. is, not the wine it I'm, is. I'm, I'm, a, I'm aware of. Ken Forrester bought his estate in Stellenbosch in 1993. Back at, back in the day, at, at that point, everybody said get rid of Shenin. Ken said not a chance. He started working with a, a winemaking friend of his called Martin Minert. Both of them still going. So FMC technically stands for Forrester Minor Shannon. What it actually stands for is fucking massive Shannon. But what Ken does, this is proper old vine kit. He sweet yeah. picks. So goes through, picks some fruit, waits a few days or whatever, goes out, picks some more, goes out, picks some more. It does see oh, French wow. oak, a li- mostly a little bit older oak. To re- and you picked up on that. It's like it wasn't lashings of oak, was it? What that means is because that of that sweet picking, he's yeah. getting to a point where some of the Shenin that he's picking has got just a little bit of betr- I think the overall botrytis impact is like 5%. This is a properly good bottle of wine. Knowing that wine as I do, you'll know it's incredibly accurate. And you got it. You went South African Shenin, so you've nailed it. You are a great <laughs> wine taster. Mike, what a wine to send Ferg. Well done, Ferg. That was really good. I enjoyed that. Um, I although I've that, made a complete idiot of myself trying to trying well, to help people learn how to buy and taste and not actually getting that. But um, but you had, you 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 were the one that called it. You said South African Shenin. Right. I'm now opening my bottle, which is wrapped in tin foil and it's got like packaging tape all over the stopper and the capsule. Here we go. So this is my attempt. Um, let's. Put... The fuck is that? <laughs> what is this? A... What is this? Because he the sent white. me the wrong bottle as well, because you obviously were going to send me like a big hearty red, because that's what I like drinking. What is this? <laughs> For fuck's sake. I bought you a wine. Well, listener, I, didn't buy I have poured a wine that is clearly pink. Blind tasting rosé, especially for someone like me who doesn't drink rosé. <laughs> <laughs> this is impossible thanks thanks Ferg thanks Mike Ferg gets a bottle of FMC one of the greatest wines on the planet I get some pink shit what is- Mike and I discussed <laughs> this wine at great length oh I'm sure you did <laughs> I said I'd like it to be challenging well this was the first one that Mike came up with actually he, he said what about this and I was like oh yeah but he doesn't like rosé and Mike said because I have some self-respect rose. 
he he loves rose and he's 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 going to be so pleased so i'm a bit hurt that you're, uh, you're not i've already made a fool of myself by going down several blind alleys and proving that actually i know very little about wine from your mm. from your wine right well i'm not going to get this no which actually so again i'm going to break character when i teach student negative mindset is the worst thing i'm not going to get this yes you are if you tell yourself you're not going to get it you're you've yeah. already lost thanks I don't believe it fit me right up. A lot of rosé tends to fall into like being really pale or having like a slightly luminous colour to it. This is towards the latter of that. It's it's actually, it's quite a deep coloured rosé. I suppose, you know, technically this is what we call medium and it's pink. It's not salmon. It's not that, it's not like that coppery bronze. So it's got a bit of colour to it. It's not really pale. So in my head, I'm already starting to go, hang on a minute. So what's that suggesting to me? So you know how I said what you're trying to work out is like grape variety, climate, production, age. I think with rosé, I've got to take a different tack what I've what I've and again I'm treating this as if it would be a WSET exam where I'm going to get given something obvious which I sincerely hope you've done so I can at least look and sound like I know what I'm doing what I would be doing with rosé is I'd be going well hang on where does rosé you treat the map of the world like a clock and I start in France at 12 o'clock so let's go around France whilst there's lots of rosé production in France what's the obvious ones rosé d'Anjou made from from Grollo I'm kind of going around obviously you get sparkling this isn't a sparkling wine so I'm going to rule out champagne and cremant there's a tiny amount of Alsace pink coming down sort of towards the, the Rhone. You, you don't really, there's a little bit of burgundy, but not much. In terms of the Rhone, you've got Tavel. So Tavel Rosé, Provence Rosé. And then working around the rest of France, again, there are rosés that exist. You know, most regions make rosé. If I step out of that, let's head to Italy. Curetto, Curetto, Bardolino, Curetto is probably the most obvious. Other than, Again, other than saying lots of regions will make rosé in some capacity, but what, what would be known for rosé? That's Italy. It's not really much in Germany. Going to some in Spain. There's quite a lot of Rosado production in Spain. A lot of that's focused on like Navarra, but there's quite a lot of rosé production in Spain. We'll obviously call it Rosado. I think they're the big, like the most well-known areas or regions. Stepping out of that, look, treating the world like a clock, the rest of the world. I'd come round to New Zealand. There's rosé production there. Australia, but they're not. They're not. They're not famed for it. Uh, South Africa. There's rosé there. Argentina, Chile. Up into America, Zinfandel. So in my head, if this is obvious, I'm basically going sort of like I'm not ruling out, but from appearance, I don't expect this to be Provence because Provencal rosé is really pale. Could be Rosé d'Anjou, you tend to get a bit of colour with that. Could be Tavel, you get a bit of colour with that. Could be Zinfandel blush from the States, but it's not quite got that luminosity. And and that's like quite deep pink, isn't it? It's quite extracted pink. I don't think it's Curetto, because Curetto comes from the word Chiaro, which means pale. But I don't think it's that. Fucking, what have you given me a rosé for? Thanks. We thought you'd enjoy it. Yeah, I'm loving this. Okay, so what I'm trying to do is, what region's known for rosé? And, and, and then I'd start thinking about variety. So if it was Rosé d'Anjou, it's a, it's a Grollo. If it's Tavel, it's Mavedra. But I think great variety's harder to pick out. Okay, let's have a go the notes quite intense mm. probably medium plus intense i'm not having to stick my nose in here and you know peter fork around primary fruit big hit of raspberry big hit of cherry that doesn't really help because all rose tastes for strawberries raspberries and cherries <laughs> strawberries uh, and cherries that's usually quite high on the list so that's the primary fruit it's red fruit but interestingly i'm figuring this is like a warmer probably a slightly warmer climate rose because of the depth of color but of course it could just be longer on the skin but the fruit is really red which suggests mm. to me it's coming from grape varieties that would be more predominantly red fruit rather than black so mm. in my head i'm going could you know if if this is a really weird rose 
could be could it be a Cabernet Sauvignon based rosé? I'm not getting any hints of like the darker fruit that Cabernet would innately give you. Mm-hmm. So in the back of my mind, I'm starting to think about grape variety here, and I don't think it's a Cabernet. There's a bit of a crunch, like a cranberry red currant thing. Interesting. Now, what gives you that? Where does that Where's that coming from? That's got to be the fruit. There's, there's something secondary here, and I, I don't know what it is because it's not oak. So what I'm doing again, I'm going primary fruit. Let's figure that out first. Now let's think about winemaking. I don't like the word funk, but there's a there's a, a like a, a leafy slightly earthy like it's integrated it's not sticking out it's not unpleasant savory maybe like a slightly lazy thing and i suddenly got like a little bit of like really fresh raspberry ripple ice cream like i think there's some least contact here it's not just that pure bright fresh red fruit rosé which is what most rosé is now it's also what is it not it's not that big ye oldie sweetie shop thing so again in my head i'm starting to rule out zinfandel blush there's no real tertiary but the fact that there is a bit of secondary and laziness here i'd, I'd have to define this as being de- developing and that's quite unusual you don't get a lot of rosé that you have as developing most rosé is just pure simple fruit and youthful right so what i'm saying to you dear listener and my dear Dear friends, Ferg and Mike, I haven't got a fucking clue what this is. What I like is that Mike has actually sent the bottle that I was hoping he'd send. So I'm really (laughs) enjoying listening to you try and work out what the bloody hell this is. (laughs) Safe in the knowledge that I know what it is, and I've read the tasting note. <laughs> Again, breaking character, forgetting that Lee doesn't like rose, I think. This is really interesting. Yeah. Right, it's really interesting. There's there's an earthy, savoury, leasy thing, and the fruit is, it's got that nice red currant. I think that red currant cranberry crunch meets up with the slightly leafy, earthy thing, so that's quite nice. It's not tomato leaf, it's not, it's not herbaceous. What am I supposed to do with this? Structure. This is dry. There's a core of sweetness, but I think that's fruit. In terms of residual sugar, I think this is a dry wine. Acid's weird, because it's not hard but it's fresh there's a seam of acid that runs all the way through this tan it's rosé we don't really talk about tan in rosé but there's a little bit of a slightly pithy tan it's like just adding a touch of complexity to it but it's, it's not tannic i think that's quite helpful i think this has had a little bit you know the color was suggesting a bit of skin contact in terms of longer than we would expect for a, a normal rosé in inverted commas and that touch of tannin would back up that supposition alcohol feels kind of medium body medium this is right this is not a run-of-the-mill rosé clearly what you two have done is gone huh wouldn't it be funny suddenly rosé yeah <laughs> let's send him a really weird one thanks it feels quite structured acid second taste acid feels a little bit higher actually acid profile feels a bit higher so there's quite a bit of structure here red fruit in here is beautifully poised again Mm -hmm. it leads with that crunch of red currant crunch of cranberry through line of it's not like super ripe and sweet is what i mean it's like just ripe strawberry just ripe red cherry which gives it a slightly savory herbaceous element there's a bit of secondary here so i've got that laziness but there's suddenly like a a slight that leafiness is becoming like a pepperiness it's not rocket this is but there's phenomenal a, there's, a, there's a there's a there's a leafy slightly peppery thing. this what the fuck is this what have you done to me and why have you done it to me i, I think there's you're, no, fine. you're really enjoying this experience there's no tertiary here it's not like smoky toasty gamey mushroomy i'm not, I'm not really getting that it feels again it's like it's developing i do find rosé harder to assess from a quality perspective but there's there's a bit going on here a lot of rosé i find really like light and herbaceous and a crunch of red fruit but not much else there is actually there's a lot going on here you know it's had a little bit longer on the skins than a standard rosé it's got some laziness to it there's more winemaking going on here than you might expect in a normal rosé so let's go back to this list that i was trying to work out I had rosé d'anjou in there I had tavel provence 
a Chiaretto, Spanish Rosado. I don't think this is New World because there's actually a bit too much acidity for it. There's no and there's no sweetness. Yeah, I'll let you have Old World. So I was going to go European. I mean, this could be again because you mentioned it with the wine. Could this be like some Eastern European thing that I have no experience with? Right. It's not Rosé d'Anjou because it's not sweet enough. Rosé d'Anjou would have some sweetness to it. Could be Rosado from Spain. Depth of colour would suggest that Rosado, Spanish Rosado, tends to be as a broad brush stroke deep. And this is what you have to do when you're blind tasting. You have to take broad brush strokes, right? So I'm sitting here going Spanish Rosado tends to be quite deeply coloured, like this is. Someone listening, you know, our one listener might go, I've had a Spanish Rosado and it was really pale. Like that will exist, but you can't do that when you're blind tasting because you you, you have to work with generalizations and funnel down. So unless you know that produces wine really well, that's the only way you can go, I know exactly what this is. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's Curetto because it's not pale enough and it's not driven by that cherry thing. It's not Provence because it's not pale enough. And again, it's not got that crisp, herbaceous, simple, more linear style of fruit. If I hope um, the wonderful Elizabeth Gabe doesn't listen to this because you go, I, I really didn't think Lee knew anything about anything, but he really doesn't know anything about rosé. It's not as infantile bluff because even there is a joke. I don't think you and Mike would send me one of those, but it isn't. That's not sweet enough. Tavel, I've not really talked about Tavel. I'd expect a deeper. Whatever this is, yeah, it's not an obvious thing. No. So I don't think I'm going to unveil this and it's like, oh, it is Provence, but I have to say, my I don't taste. So obviously, I don't really drink rosé. Breaking character is just it. Just generally isn't sort of my thing but also because I don't really taste a lot of rosé either in, in my day job so partly that's my excuse as to why I fluffed this so badly I don't think you fluffed this <sighs> I, d- I have no idea what this is it's not obvious and I can't remember the last time I tasted a Tavel rosé but the only thing I can think that this could be is a Tavel rosé they make rosé in the south oh, they make rosé everywhere so I oh is it a southern French rosé I'd have no more idea if it was a southern French rosé than if it was a Bordeaux rosé or a claret wouldn't surprise me if Mike had like a, a Bordeaux claret in there but that would be Cabernet based, right? Or would it yeah. have some Merlot in it, wouldn't it? But I'd expect it to be more dark. Again, Cab based with dark fruit in there. And this is this is like red. This is red fruit. I, oh. So not only have you, you sent me a rosé, knowing that I'm not really rosé drink, you've also purposely sent me something. There's absolutely not a chance he's getting this. So uh, um, thanks. Yeah. But ultimately, I'm going to step back from this. I'm going to be the big man and go. Ultimately, this is about you know what's my approach to blind tasting, exactly. and it's obvious that my approach is completely incorrect. And wrong. And what we should have done was got Mike Best on MW, because not only is he a great guy and an MW, he is a phenomenal blind taster. And he he did a session with me when he, when he taught me about, and I learned more in an hour blind tasting with Mike than I did in my entire two years of deployment. I hear of you saying Mike Best into a glass of wine three times. He appears. He appears and tells you what's in the wine. Mike Best. Mike Best. Mike Best. What would it sound like if Darth Vader said Mike Best? <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, I don't. I, I really hope Mike Best doesn't listen to this episode because he'll go. That guy's a complete cretin. This podcast. Lee either. is a cretin. Would you like Grenache is red fruit, and it's got a bit of weight to it. It's a Tavel rosé. That's yeah. I'm wrong. I'm I'm incorrect. I. And I'm basing that on nothing. To me. I have no idea. I'm guessing. So what I am doing here is, and this is what you should not do. I've got to an answer that kind of agrees with my evidence, but I don't think it's the right answer. But I'm putting it in there because I have no idea what else it could be. Because it could easily be a Southern French. It could be a, a Spanish. It could be some sort of, sort of weird Italian. I don't think it will be Italian because it's not cherry enough. So I'm, the, the conclusion I'm reaching isn't actually, I'm making my conclusion fit the evidence rather than I think the evidence points to this which is absolutely how you should not blind taste at all. But what's happened here, dear listener, is I have been completely stitched up. I will be consulting TM and TM HR department over this. This will go legal. 
I think this is completely unfair. I've been mistreated. Mm -hmm. Everything I've done for the business. I'm going to Vell. I have no idea what it is. Okay, it's not developed. Can I can I unveil it? You can. Tinfoil coming up. It is French. Well, I was obviously going to guess what that was, wasn't I? Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why it took you so long. Van de France, a table. A table. It's it's come to the table. A table. A table. Fabienne. Okay, so this is made by Fabienne Huvez. I I've heard the name. I don't know anything about him, but I've heard the name. It's got. One Van, of your favourite varieties in. They don't grow Nebbiolo in France. Van vivant, issue exclusivement de la fermentation de raisin, a conserve de préférence à une température inférieure à, what's 15 in French? D, uh, DS, uh, no, that's quince. Spanish. Quince, uh, 15 degrees, I don't know what that word is in French. Risque, risque de dépôt naturel. Okay, right. So this is made from the fermentation of grapes. At less than Serve 15 degrees. Less, yeah, keep the kept temperature kept below 15 degrees. It's at the risk of throwing a natural deposit. So this is a really fucking weird natural... Yeah. yeah. Le- well, that's where the lazy thing's coming from, right? Yes. Cool ferment. Oh, it's got one of my favourite grapes in it. It's got Malbec in it. Where is it actually from? So now you've got Malbec. Does that help you? Well, Malbec, France, you know, obviously it grows in Bordeaux, it grows in Loire, and it grows in Cahors. Mm. This is, Right, so I've been sent... <laughs> a Malbec based rose from Cahors. I mean, they're everywhere. <laughs> How did I not get that? <laughs> yep. Right. I've done really badly there. I freely admit to that. I own up to my mistakes. Mm. In fairness, that would be very difficult to get. I think the only person in the world that stood would stand a chance of getting that is Elizabeth Gabo. Yeah, because I she knows rosé inside out. So the, um, the wine you the wine you drank uh, a table a table, from, which is a a rosé made by Fabian Fabian Hovez. It's from Cahors. It's twenty twenty. It's a Malbec Tannat blend. Alcohol thirteen percent. A, a, a Malbec Tannat blend. Ah, yeah. well, I mean, now you say it. Yeah, piece of cake, right? ABV, 13%, visiculture, organic, biodynamic. But it's got possibly my favourite tasting note of all time on on, on, on Mike Boyne's Bintu website, uh, Bintu.com, for those of you who haven't heard us mention it half a hundred times. Uh, it roars into your palate with the passion of berries that fought off birds so they could be made into wine. Yeah, that's right. Bird fighting berries. And guess what? Even though it's dark, it is bone dry. Bone. Ice desert dry. And I just thought and I, that's possibly one of I the mean, best if, things if I've seen. I mean, if you've given me that no. tasting though i'd have said well this has got to be a malbec tanner natural rosé from cohort but yeah now that what i i love wines that make you think and that provoke conversation and this wine would do that and i also am particularly fond of consuming charcuterie and this wine with charcuterie would be brilliant in all seriousness i've i've really enjoyed going through that process i don't blind taste anywhere near enough i'm a dreadful blind taster i'd like to be better but it's like it takes time anybody that's not blind tasted before get into it it's revelatory it really helps you explore and understand the wine the world of wine so much it's more it's certainly remind this whole exercise has certainly reminded me, i don't blind taste at all it's not something i do regularly it's reminded me how fun it can be even though yeah. it's it's the potential for embarrassment is gargantuan. It's actually, it's just such a satisfying process. Get a process that works for you. Stick to it. Blind taste the same way every single time and do it regularly. And you will become a, a good blind taster, unlike me. Huge thanks to Mike Boyne for giving Ferg a brilliant bottle of wine and mm-hmm. me this. I am uh, about to go and text Mike with my thoughts. <laughs> um, we may not be mentioning him ever again on the maker and the merchant 
But Ferg, this has been an absolute blast, as always. Thank you. Cheers, um, dude. I've I'm sure we'll get every second of this one. I'm sure we'll get another episode in before Christmas. I don't know what that'll look like, but we'll figure that oh, out. Maybe but, we will. But maybe we I will. mean, what a conclusion to season one, though. I mean, let's call it the Christmas special. I feel like that sits outside. This could be it. Just in case we don't get another episode in to hmm. our all our dear listener, wishing you sincerely. Uh, it's difficult for me to sound sincere because of the way I am, but I am genuinely sincere to our dear listener. Thank you for supporting and listening to TM and TM. We really appreciate it. We don't expect anybody to listen, really. But wishing you a very healthy, very happy, and a very Merry Christmas. I'll drink to that, even a glass of rosé. Cheers. Yeah, what he said. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Cheers, mate. Cheers, dude.